Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I am, of course, excited for today's incredible panel because returning to the roundup is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. It's great to see you. Good morning. It's great to be with you and Mike today. That's right. Returning to the roundup is politicology fan favorite, Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, good morning. What was for breakfast? Numbers, lots of numbers. It's that season. We're going to talk about that. It's uh, Numbers are starting to be relevant, so I'm excited about that. Great to be with both of you. I love the chemistry of this group. As always... On this week's Roundup, we will dive into President Biden's first State of the Union address, his plans for responding to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, his no longer secret plan to fight inflation. You'll get that if you're a West Wing fan. And his four-part unity agenda. And then when we move over to Politicology Plus, we're going to take a look at the corporate response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the corporations that asked the Biden administration to go soft on Putin. Politicology Plus is the only place you can get this discussion and so many more. If you're not already subscribed, you can use the Apple Podcasts app. Just open up Politicology and double-click your iPhone to try it for free. Or you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get in for 30% off. Let's dig in. On Tuesday night, President Joe Biden delivered his first State of the Union address, clocking in at just over an hour and 6,476 words, according to Politico, but who's counting? Biden spoke about a wide range of topics from the ongoing crisis in Ukraine to not defunding the police, to his plan to fight inflation, to the importance of keeping schools open, to recovering from COVID and investigating pandemic fraud, to his newly announced unity agenda. So we're going to dive into the meat of the speech uh, and take some time on the bigger topics. But first, just to get the ball rolling, I, I, I want to talk about our reactions. Um, and I have had lots of thoughts about this as it was happening, but um, I thought he nearly perfectly nailed the opening on Ukraine. Um, and And the only thing that could have been better is, you know, had he explained more to ordinary people. Americans, why they needed to care. Um, But uh, Ron Brownstein's piece in The Atlantic uh, opened with, few presidents have come into a State of the Union needing a second wind as badly as Biden did. And in fact, this speech came as Biden's average approval rating is about 42%. He's been underwater since August and has held in the low 40s since October, which is pretty bad. That's down about 13 points since his approval rating peaked last spring. And only about 30% of independent voters said they approved of his job performance, um, which is about as low as Trump ever reached with independents. I thought that uh, Glenn Bolger, who's a Republican pollster that I have worked with in the past, he's one of the best pollsters on the Republican side, in my opinion, he uh, was quoted in this piece, and I thought it spoke to something I've mentioned a couple times before that I that I that I think is real um, and worth mentioning. Uh, even though it's uncomfortable for a lot of people, which is, Glenn put it this way, he comes across as an old man who's not all there all the time, and that's not what you want in the White House. Um, 
and people are saying we traded in a bully for someone who just doesn't have his act together. Uh, they don't have faith in him to show the leadership to get us out of these problems. Now, that's a Republican take, obviously, but the the I, the the image of an old man who's not all there all the time is uh, one that I have been sort of struggling with for a while, and I and I. Uh, I want to discuss that in a little bit and see what you guys think about that. But on the positive side, I was particularly proud of how forceful he pushed back on the defund the police folks and made it clear that schools need to be open. And I thought that was important for him to speak to these things, not just as the president of the United States, but as the leader of the Democratic Party, the chief spokesperson for Democrats. Um, I thought it was very important. Uh, that that he got that across. And I heard a lot of empathy for the American people, which is what Axelrod had counseled uh, recently, meeting people where they are. I thought he did a really good job of that. Um, and uh, I have to say, I was kind of stunned at how America first parts of it sounded. Um, it, Ron Brownstein put it this way. Biden praised international diplomatic and military cooperation, but offered an unabashedly nationalistic economic vision. And uh, that that has to do with all of the sort of supply chain self-sufficiencies and uh, make it in America uh, pieces of the speech, So, which are not bad. I just, it was very striking to me how much it sounded like an America first type of speech. So anyway, my take is politically, while there are plenty of other tax attacks available to Republicans, which we'll discuss. Um, I think that 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 part of the speech in particular, the, um, the, the, the sort of nationalistic economic agenda, really closed the Democrats hate America attack, which has been emanating from one smoldering, defeated, twice impeached, sociopathic, failed coup plotting ex-president. What did you think, Mike? Boy, there, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, and I thought it was – I'm generally not a, a huge fan of the State of the Union speech um, because, politically because they they rarely move numbers. The people that do tune in tend to, tend to be a very engaged and captive audience, and it is extraordinarily difficult to screw up um, a State of the Union speech. You've got the perfect backdrop. You've got a completely scripted speech that you've been practicing for days and, and reworking the lines and the language. And the people that you're trying to impact the most are all tuning in to watch with most of their preconceived notions. There's just very, very few examples. Even, even Donald Trump, remember Van Jones famously said tonight Donald Trump became president? Donald Trump gave good State of the Union speeches. You may not have liked them, but they worked exactly to what they were supposed to do. And I, I can't think of a bad State of the Union speech. Now, having said that, um, persuasion is, is not always what we're looking for in these things. A lot of this is really an articulation of the roadmap of how they're going to be governing, especially a year in. And as Joe Biden meets his first and what will probably be, hopefully be his biggest test uh, as president, which is a war in Europe. And I, I thought he did remarkably well in the beginning. And I think stylistically, I thought it was fascinating that he you know, used the famous speech, which we're all looking for, is what's the adjective he's going to use in describing the State of the Union? Normally, it's towards the front, front third of the speech, and he articulates where he or she, he to this point, articulates where we're at. Um, the State of the Union is strong and then makes the case for why that is. This was the exact opposite. 
this this closed um, with the State of the Union is strong. I thought that was unique, and I thought it was an important little gamble there because of Biden's style. He he had to make um, uh, the case for what he had done when the largest criticism is that not enough is getting done, at least from the left. I think Ron Brownstein's article in The Atlantic um, very eloquently um, explained the conundrum that Biden has, which is all of the pieces of his main domestic agenda test individually very, very positively. People want each one of them with very high numbers, but as an entire package, it plummets and it loses support. So in order to talk about what he wants to get done, um, he can't talk about the package because it reminds people that it didn't get done or he doesn't have the, the, either the moxie the, the, or the capacity or, or the, the, the will in Congress to get his domestic agenda done. And it, it, I think most people would suggest that that's a particularly difficult situation to be in, and, and maybe it is. But what I've always believed about the Biden administration is that they need better messengers. I don't believe he's ever going to be the best messenger for the cause. The truth of the matter is I don't think Joe Biden has ever been the best messenger for his cause. This is not a man who has ever inspired the national Democratic base. I think he got 2% of the vote when he ran for president against Barack Obama. There were a lot of questions in the Democratic primary. Um, he, he's just he's, – he's Delaware, Right. And uh, God bless you, Delaware. But he said, you know, he even said in the State of the Union that the, the, the main the, the main claim to fame for Delaware is they, that's where people incorporate. Like, that's what you think of with, with Delaware. He's not he's 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 not the character you would imagine when a nation goes to war. And this is what you want as a wartime president. His style, no disrespect to the president, is is stilted. It is a little bit bumbling. There are very legitimate reasons for that, which I think we all know and the listeners know. This is not a criticism. It's just a fact. And I don't, I, I do believe that there's this, uh, and I, this is a really deadly word for a politician, but there's a feebleness about, about Joe Biden. And that's okay. You're going to have to work with it, but don't ask him to do anything other than what he has been for six decades uh, in his political career, five decades. It's, it's just not going to happen, so quit trying. They need to play with it uh, as it lies. But um, look, to wrap it all up, I, I, I think it was, it was more important to, to, to follow the State of the Union for what they were telling us, what the style meant, and what, um, what the roadmap forward is for a president testing in, in an extraordinarily low range. Um, I, I I would give him a B. It would be lower, except I understand Biden's limitations. And I think um, I'm overlooking the style because I can explain a lot of it away. Yeah. Susan, especially to Mike's point, the, the, the environment has changed around Biden since he was elected, which everyone has used the term caretaker president, right? When he, when we chose him over Donald Trump, now he's a wartime president and the, and the sort of expectations have changed, but uh, feel free to speak to that. But I also am just curious about your, your global reactions to the, to the speech. And we know you were up very late, uh, doing TV analysis. So I'm sure you have all of your takes ready to go. <laughs> Well, well, first, I, I have to get this off at the top 
and it's just a messaging thing. President Biden is not a wartime president. Our country is not at war. There is not a war in conventional Europe right now. There is a potential that Eastern Europe will go into a non-NATO country will go into NATO countries. Yes, there's a possibility. But the president is not a wartime president. We are not at war. And that could be a point of discussion as to should we be at war or not. But currently we are not. Um, Just looking broadly at the speech, and I am not, I too am not a fan of State of the Union, especially in the last several years, because we're such a divided country. There's no winning it. There's no, you, you know, there's no sense of patriotism among listening to our president tell us what's happening, even if you disagree with it. But there were a couple of really good things that the president did do in this speech. First of all, when you turned it on, you didn't see the mask. It gave a sense of that there was a time, like we're kind of back to the way things were, if you will, normal, situ- you know, politics situations. Um, that is a big message on COVID that he sent to the country seeing that just off the bat. The second big, biggest takeaway I had was we are no longer as a nation, a global bully, rather a global leader. And that to me is very substantial. All the work that the president put in um, over the last two weeks in not just getting our, our allies on board, but showing the significance, it actually played out in fairly real time, um, having the uh, intelligence declassified so he could share it with the American public and our NATO allies, having that all roll out that they, um, even the Germans were among the first to impose sanctions, uh, to having you know, Switzerland on board, neutral Switzerland, and then just recently having Finland and Sweden Speaking out and ready to do sanctions, that is huge in, in, the, in the global um, platform, if you will. So I think that he, he could have done more to explain the situation of Ukraine to the American people. But frankly, I don't think the American people really needed or wanted to hear much more than what they did. It was an hour speech, 62 minutes. He spent 12 minutes specifically on Ukraine. Um, just from a communication standpoint, he, he, that standing ovation right away for Ukraine and showing our united, our country united behind Ukraine was tremendous. And I thought it was actually quite, um, brilliant of the staff to make sure there was applause lines throughout the speech that required bipartisan standing and clapping. It was, it looked like a unity speech throughout, which again is, is somewhat unique in, in recent days. And when I say recent days, I should say in the last decade or so. So they, it was written in such a way to force unity, even if you didn't want to be um, on the Republican side, standing up and clapping. Then the, I think domestically, one of, the, one of the biggest takeaways for me was the test to treat um, rollout of COVID saying, we are going to be on top of this. We're not going to get caught like we did last year with um, home testing. We're going to be like on top of this if there's an outbreak on COVID and addressing inflation the best he could. There is no easy way to address inflation. The president, any president, doesn't have a lot of control over it. It's a Fed issue. He did make the plea to the Republicans, please, 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 please 
support my nomination um, of the Fed members. Uh, I think he has them in, it's in process right now. So overall, um, I agree with Mike in the sense of the delivery is not, it's not fiery, but I think he went back to elect campaigning Biden, which was he promised to try and bring in the country everywhere he could to unite us. And he gave that kind of speech of what we saw on the campaign trail. He did do outreaches to re- outreach to Republicans. And then he also tried to do some outreach to the progressive side of the party. The defund the police, he's not for defunding the police, he's for defund for funding the police was a great line to try and take crime off of the table when it comes to the 2022 elections. I do not think it will work, um, especially when you look at screaming headlines from more progressive states. But it was it was an essential line, even though it did kind of get the backs up of some people to his left. I want to dig into a few of those pieces uh, a little bit more. But first, let's want to get your take on how he ended the speech, the conclusion that Mike alluded to earlier. Um, let's roll that clip and then, and then we can talk about the numbers. My fellow Americans, tonight we've gathered in this sacred space, a citadel of democracy in this capital, generation after generation of Americans have debated great questions amid great strife and have done great things. We fought for freedom expanded liberty, debated totalitarianism and terror. We built the strongest, freest, and most prosperous nation the world has ever known. Now is the hour, our moment of responsibility, our test of resolve and conscience of history itself. It is in this moment that our character of this generation is formed. Our purpose is found. Our future is forged. Well, I know this nation. We'll meet the test, protect freedom and liberty, expand fairness and opportunity, and we will save democracy. As hard as those times have been, I'm more optimistic about America today than I've been my whole life, because I see the future that's within our grasp, because I know there's simply nothing beyond our our capacity. We're the only nation on earth that has always turned every crisis we faced into an opportunity. The only nation that can be defined by a single word, possibilities. So on this night, on our 245th year as a nation, I've come to report on the state of the nation, the state of the union. And my report is this, the state of the union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today We are stronger today than we were a year ago. And we'll be stronger a year from now than we are today. This is our moment to meet and overcome the challenges of our time. And we will, as one people, one America, the United States of America. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Go get him. So over 71% of viewers said they had a positive reaction to the speech in a CNN SSRS poll. That's down from 78% of viewers who had a positive reaction to his joint address last spring. 
Um, the percentage of people who said that Biden's policy proposals will move the country in the right direction jumped 15 points after the speech from 52 to 67. Uh, among Democrats, it went up six points from 90 to 96. Uh, among independents, it went up 14 from 44 to 58. Among Republicans, it went up tw- it went up 26 points from 10 points to 36 points. Uh, among white, non-college educated viewers, it jumped from 35 to 55. And among viewers who said they had disapproved of Biden's job performance, it jumped from six points to 40 points. So lots of movement. I want to dig into some of the bigger sections in a minute, the policy areas, Susan, that you mentioned. But before we get to that, I want to know how effective you think the types of messages that we heard are going to be in winning back that 13% of voters in the midterms. Um, And how effective do you think these pieces are going to be for inoculating Democrats against the attacks from Republicans? Well, I think one of the things that played very well in this speech, and I don't know how long um, us as a nation will hold on to it, is by starting off with Ukraine, it invoked a sense of patriotism. When the when you listen to those final words of the president's speech, it really what what are the images that come to mind immediately? Are is the fighting in Ukraine for what for democracy? So there it was something built into I think the environment of this speech and and currently about that fight for democracy, that fight for freedom. There's no longer a fight for freedom. Republicans aren't talking about mass and, and, and vaccinations and fighting for our freedom for vaccinations or, you know, they're talking about fighting for freedom for, for people's lives. It becomes more immediate. It becomes very grounded into a psyche. It works really well. I don't know how long that will last. As far as the policy goes, you know, I've always said this about, about this administration and previous Democratic administrations. They cannot drill down on their on their policies, on their achievements day after day after day. It's like you give a good speech, you go out a couple of times. Yeah. And I happen to agree also with what Mike said earlier. He's never Biden's never been a great messenger. His people aren't great messengers, but they have a good message that they should just even if it's done in a okay fashion, they have to keep drilling it home. And that's what I think is the Democrats' biggest problems going towards 2022 with some of these policies is that they're still going to eat. Democrats are either going to explain them as college professors or they're going to stop talking about things that they think are not top priorities for people like hearing over and over that we are at the lowest unemployment, that we are doing. These are the things that we're doing to fight inflation, even if they don't actually in a lot of ways work, but talking about the strategic oil reserves and, 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 um, releasing 30, I think 30 million barrels, uh, uh, for, I'm not sure of the timetable, but when they talk about releasing the strategic, um, oil reserve, that's really important, but they have to keep drilling it home day after day after day. So Mike, let's just close out this first segment, um, talking about the, the, the close of the speech. So I think you mentioned this. It was a gamble. It was bold to sit to, to close with the State of the Union is strong, right? He followed it up really quickly with, you know, because the American people are strong. My question is, do, do the American people feel strong? 
do we feel like that is true or is that more aspirational? And if it's aspirational, is it going to work? That's a great question. I think the way to answer that is to say it has to work because it's his only way out. There are a lot of things that are outside of his control that will determine his destiny otherwise. Uh, there's, As Susan mentioned, there's only so much he can do on bringing inflation under control as president. It's probably even more limited on what he can do in the next six or seven months before the midterms. Uh, it's why I think he, he should have strongly leaned into Ukraine and the bigger 30,000-foot message much more weightily. I think there's this tendency, uh, Democrats all have them, I think every Democratic president and probably the staff, this real need to say we're getting stuff done, we're getting stuff done to show his competence. I disagree with that. I've always disagreed with that, as you know, and I think that that Ukraine, as horrible as the situation is, provides a gift, it's manna from heaven to reset. And I think that they missed that a little bit tonight or last uh, during the State of the Union. I think I think it can be done still. There's still going to be opportunities, but but they, they're going to really have to recast the way that they are looking at this. Look, again, Susan was right. This is not technically a wartime president. I, I would argue we've actually been at war for the past five or six years because Russia's interfering with our elections is, is literally an act of war. But set that aside for a moment. Whether we are or whether we're not, he needs to articulate that fact that we are by laying out what the threat is. And it is a real threat. Look, this, this emerging conflict is not about Russia and Ukraine. It is, it is not even about East and West. It is very much about which form of democracy is going to take hold and set the, the framework for this next century. And if we are not successful, I think the, the, the possibility, I would argue the likelihood of not only democratic decline with a small d, but American decline is very, very real. And that is the term that I would have used. That's the, the phrasing, the framing that I would have set. He runs the risk of being framed as Jimmy Carter, as a president. And the, the Republicans are openly talking about this. And for those viewers that that don't or listeners that don't remember this, you know, Carter oversaw a time of of, of rapidly expanding inflation, uh, a general um, feebleness and weakness abroad, and that led to the rise of of, of Ronald Reagan in large part. Uh, not much was going well domestically or on the foreign policy front. He needed to tap into the, the, the FDR rallying of there is nothing to fear but fear itself. And what he said was, we're going to be okay, which I get. The sentiment is right. We're going to be okay, right? He said that three or four times. For those of you that are worried, he's, he's trying to mitigate the threat and fear of nuclear annihilation by saying we're going to be okay. But, and I appreciate that. I think that's where Joe Biden's probably at his best, the ability to show compassion, especially when people are suffering. I think that's, that's really a Joe Biden quality and characteristic. But what he needed to do was to set and prepare the, the, the American people for a, a larger bilateral conflict to articulate which side you're on. And the Republicans are in a really bad spot right now because there is so much 
coming out, and they all know it, that's going to show this direct correlation between the ties of the establishment of the Republican Party, including the former president, high-level aides, lobbying polit- uh, political consultants, and, and you, you name it. What we're going to find out about how much Russian money has moved into this system is overwhelmingly going to show the complicity of the Republican apparatus. And, and when Tucker Carlson is out there spewing Russian Today talking points, they have a very big problem. And and to me, I would I would have owned that completely because if you set that frame and you fight on that frame, you have the possibility of winning, a very good chance of winning and coming out on top. That's how Republicans fight. Democrats still yeah, but Mike, I, I, I've got to like jump in because like I, I have like I need yeah. to unravel like some of what yeah. you said because I'm like jumping out of my seat here. Um, one of the reasons I don't want to call President Biden or any president who would be in this situation a wartime president is I don't want to forgetting the implication of if we're at war or not. This is not a war he can win. So why you don't want to set up and why I, I, I certainly don't think he should be set up as. This is this is America's war. In no, this is absolutely That's this is absolutely a war he can win, and it's absolutely a war we must win. He absolutely he you all right. In what time frame? It's like saying if we can win a war. I mean, that's the problem with all this, both Republicans and Democrats. We talk about wars. Ukraine is literally at war. They are fighting for their lives. They are fighting over what? Border, land, quite literally is the situation. Now, you want to change it into a rhetorical question about the fight for democracy. And I think Biden did that very well. And I think it's a unifier as a patriotic cause. But if this is what Biden makes 2022 about, the Democrats are going to get a shellacking because, you know, the Republicans, all they're going to do, and the polling all shows it right now, number one issue by like huge, huge margins is the economy and um, inflation versus okay, foreign l- policy. L- let me, let me. So <laughs> you, you want to like you want to I understand no, I what you're you talking do. about and, and the bigger do. issue. Here's why. I, I definitely Here's why. But if we talk about it 30 30- with Russian interference in our elections, which the overwhelming majority of Americans believe because we have hard evidence, that is literally an act of war. That is an attack. It is not tanks. You literally could not be. That is not a factual statement. Half of the people in this country do not think that Russia interfered with our That's elections because President Trump but, tells not true. them but, so. Not true. But this is why we don't conduct foreign policy by public opinion. <laughs> It doesn't matter whether or not the American people recognize the interference as a. I couldn't agree with more. Right. But when uh, when you're talking about, you know, you want to talk about that kind of war, that's okay. But most people are going to the supermarket today, filling up their gas tanks, seeing they're paying more at the pump, they're buying their eggs, they're buying their produce, and they're seeing it's costing more. Bread is going to increase because with the conflict in Ukraine, the price of 25% of the world's wheat is now going to be in jeopardy. So prices are going to go up. If the Democrats don't, and this is why President Biden only spent you know, a substantial amount, 25% of his time on Ukraine, if he doesn't start looking domestically because the people of the United States, just as in Afghanistan, just like in Iraq, they are not touched personally by this, that war or this current war. And especially when it comes now, if you want to try and get buy-in to get, to get the U.S. more involved, 
I, I'm not that's a whole that different case. conversation. Okay, I can think, I finish then? Can, but can I, Biden can I finish? did the exact just one thing. Just one thing. Biden did his absolute best job as being a by showing he was a global leader and making us showing us in a position of strength globally. Uh, okay. Right, let, let me just finish my, my point, if I could, so we can move on to the next one. And I appreciate everything you're saying. I just do not believe that anything that Joe Biden said, uh, literally about the price of wheat in Ukraine, is going to be able. We're not going to be able to affect that by the midterms. And I think it's nonsensical to fight politically on battlefields that you cannot win on. You can't. You're, you are articulating the case for why we should exactly pivot off of this, pivot away from that, okay? He's not going to be able to fix the supply chain issues. He's not going to bring down the price of wheat in Ukraine. He's not going to be able to affect the price of gas when we are in the middle of a war and we just you know, shut down any capacity for the Russians to deliver energy. So, so, so why would you ever fight on those grounds? That, may, that is absurd. So the, let, me, let me finish. I, let me finish. I'm not let me fight finish. on those grounds. The way you win a campaign and heading into the midterms is you set the framework. You set the battlefield where you have the high ground, okay? If you cannot win on inflation, don't fight on inflation, okay? If you cannot win domestically because you can't affect the outcomes, don't fight domestically. Fight with the opportunity that you have been given. And this has been a gift from the gods, the political gods saying, reframe and recast this president as somebody who can go in and, one, erase completely the debacle of the withdrawal in Afghanistan, first and foremost. Those commercials are not going to run in the middle uh, you know, with six more months of warfare going on in Ukraine. And the second is start articulating that you are not only a global leader, but the values that you are fighting for. If you're not talking about the threats to democracy in a meaningful way, why would you ever be surprised that the voters are not responding? If you're trying to articulate, as he did, as he did, if you are trying to articulate why Build Back Better is going to fight inflation, why, why would you fight on ground that you cannot win on? That is completely nonsensical. Couldn't disagree more. Go ahead, Ron. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, so I just have two two clarifying points. First of all, I I uh, I think the, the 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 tension here over war depends on what you understand war to be, and I am afraid that the American people have an antiquated, a severely antiquated understanding of what yes. war looks like and what war is. And I yeah. I, I I believe Russia has been at war with yeah. us for years, and they we have, have not acknowledged that. Russia has been at war with the West for years. And that's where a lot of this is coming from. The Ukrainians are fighting over a border. Yes. But they're fighting for self-sovereignty of those borders. And that's ultimately what's at stake. And that's the moral argument that Biden needs to make to the American people, the values-driven argument. Uh, when you say meaningfully, Mike, about democracy, meaningfully is the important part because the word democracy doesn't resonate. And I'm afraid that's what Susan's trying to get to. Democracy doesn't mean anything to anybody, really. It's just a placeholder word for whatever you, for whatever, uh, you know, uh, voting rights legislation you happen to want that day. D set aside the word democracy, the meaningful part is the part that needs to be articulated, the moral case for why America needs to be a leader in the world. And that's, and, and by leveling up the frame, this is a this is a sort of uh, a social psychological trick that we use in marketing by leveling up the frame by by going a level up with the argument you can claim the high ground that the that your opponent is not able to to reach essentially so Biden's I'm the motherfucking mm -hmm. president of the United States which is now back and the president of the United States is the leader of the free world 
And the leader of the free world has to be concerned about global stability, and that's my job. You're, he, he can't do a lot of the things that you just talked about, Mike, um, but the best he can do, Susan, I think, is empathize with the pain, the lived experience of the American people while he is making it very clear he has a very big job to do and he's focused on doing that. If you see him as the leader, the guy in charge, you don't want the guy in charge to go away in the middle of a crisis no, if he's handling it competently. Absolutely. So that's, that's, yeah. And I think the backdrop of Ukraine, and I hate to call it a backdrop, but in, it, when you're looking at it from this country and as a citizen, it is a backdrop. Is is an is a is it a very important thing for the president to keep mentioning because of what it represents and democracy and the fight and the fight for freedom, the unity of a country, our country, their country. Those are all very important things, and they should keep talking about it. But what I'm trying to say is that there is no way you can pretend and just talk about democracy and the fight for it. And not, you don't have to say I have the best plan to fight inflation because I agree there is no secret plan to fight inflation anywhere. And the plan that does exist isn't going to work. Let's just be very clear: the plan is not going to work. Inflation was here before Ukraine, before the supply chains got further fucked up, and oil went up through the roof. It was, and it's going to be here all throughout 2022. Agreed. 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 It's important that he says I I understand. I'm going to try and address it, but it's not going to he's not going to fix it, and he shouldn't say I'm going to fix it. No, he can even say, I'm going to, I believe so much in this fight in Ukraine and what it represents that we as a country to get behind it may even have to pay a little more at the pump. It may cost us that a few cents more. I don't know if he actually should say it, but I think it's got to be messaged at a certain point. That being said, you can't pretend that inflation doesn't exist. You can't pretend that you don't understand what people are going through. What You don't talk about supply chains, but you do talk about the effect of supply chains. You do, you do talk about, for example, the fact that you've put in billions and billions and billions of dollars in education funding for, those ki- for kids who lost two years of their lives to make up things. You do talk about domestic issues. You cannot just make it about what's going on over there because first of all i don't while this may last weeks and months um depending i mean we, none of us know how involved this could this turn into us enforcing airspace yes but that is basically starting world war 3 with with russia could it happen yes but Right now, we have a commitment from this president that U.S. troops are not fighting in Russia. We will not do that. So under that, he's going to there comes a point where you have to also look domestically. You can, you ha- yes, being strong globally is now back. As I said, we went from a bully to being a leader. That is something that not only is good politically, it's something for Americans to be proud of. But. Every day that people keep seeing higher gas prices, higher costs, and the Democrats refuse to talk about it and do their usual, well, this is what we're going to do because we know what you need, that's not going to help them against Republicans who are going to say they don't care. They're not even willing to talk about what they're going to do about inflation, or they're not going to talk about what makes prices lower in your grocery store. 
where's the repeal? I hate to go yunking on you, but where's the repeal of the grocery tax in certain states or the gas tax for that matter, which Democrats are bringing up? That is a positive thing that they can talk about. It doesn't mean that they have to talk about the 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 PhD of why inflation exists and why we can't do anything about it. They have to get down with the public. Okay, so in the SSRS poll, nearly 70% of viewers said that Biden did enough to address the Russian invasion and partisanship uh, breakdown is 84% of Dems, 66% of Indies, and 51% of Republicans. Um, so they also asked viewers if the U.S. economy or the situation in Ukraine were more important to them, which one? Viewers picked the economy two to one, 50%, 51% of Dems, 65% of independents, and 80% of Republicans. So this sort of gets to, it depends on, you know, what you think they mean by economy, whether that's jobs, growth, inflation, wages, not keeping up with job growth, uh, et cetera. So, so the, the, those numbers are, you got to be able to read through them. Um, Mike, given those, the, the way those numbers break down, how do you, how, how do you assess the weight the, the two issues were given? I, I don't, and here's why. It's kind of, look, I mentioned in the introduction that numbers are now becoming important. So let me spend a little, because they are, and mm -hmm. let me explain why. Yeah. What you're looking for, and for those of you who followed us during the Lincoln Project, I said the exact same thing. The way campaigns work this far out is you're looking for movement. That's all that matters. You're looking at how fluid the electorate is. The issues that we're talking about now were not the issues that we were talking about 10 days ago, okay? Why would we think that they're going to be the same sentiment that is going to happen in six or seven months? It's not. All, all I do know about the elections in November is the political environment is going to be different. That means I'm looking for fluidity. And what this shows is that Biden can bring back Democrats, which he needs, and independents. On what issue? On Ukraine. Okay, that's what the math. That's what the math. That's what the polling is telling us. That's the consolidation that must occur. He's not ever going to get Republicans. Okay, in a meaningful way, he can get that small sliver that we've got in the 2020 elections, and he's need to get those back. But you don't go after that until you've consolidated your base, and that has been Biden's biggest problem: is he has not consolidated his base. And Brownstein, again, articulates this extremely well why that is happening, is the two divergent sides of the base means he cannot make AOC and Manchin happy. He can't. And so he can't consolidate the base by building a domestic agenda. There's just math. It's just not going to work, right? And so that, what, I, what is important at this point in time is now, as we start the early stages of the midterms, is to look for movement. It's really not important on what issues are providing that movement for voters. There's going to be consolidation late in the cycle, but you have to look at where the fluidity is. It means public opinion has not been set yet. And those are the areas where you need to focus on that fluidity to start bringing those voters home and start consolidating the base. That's why it's so important. Mike, yeah. I have one question. I have a question yeah. on, on those numbers. So... I agree with everything you said about the R's and the D's and the two, how, mm -hmm. how it's divided and, and consolidating the Democrats. But 
at least at some statewide and a lot of locals elections, we see independents really swinging towards mm-hmm. Republicans now at the state. We see that whatever whatever message either the Democrats are se- are selling, they're not buying, or the Republicans are selling a better message. That could be up for debate. But you see those numbers. It seems to me those are the only numbers that are really moving in, in, in such swings. No. Uh- Young Democrats and Hispanics is where the most is. There's as much movement there. But percentage wise of voters. I don't know what the percentages are, but if you don't have your base, it doesn't matter. Okay, but what does it tell us right now? The fact that independents are swinging in such a way and are they can they swing back to to Democratic uh, policies? The short answer uh, to Democratic policies Probably not. And here's, here's why. It's a really good question. What, we're, what drives the electorate more than the partisanship that we've all come to know and be talk about is the concept of negative partisanship, which means that people are voting against something more than they are voting for something. And when you understand that, it actually starts to explain why we have had many decades now of these gyrations between the balance of power and these extremely small margins. So it's not that people voted for Joe Biden. They were voting against Donald Trump. That's not a mandate for Joe Biden. It's not a mandate for the Democrats. It's not a mandate for an expansive government agenda that they're putting forward. And so the public reacts against that and starts saying, no, we don't want that. We didn't vote for that. We were voting against Donald Trump. And independents are the most driven by negative partisanship, right? That's why they're not that's why they're not in parties. Right. And so when you when you when you look at and, and that, again, explains this historical pendulum shift that we have seen moving so rapidly since 1994. Right. All but three, maybe four elections since 1994 have been against the party in power. So in many ways, it's a historical trend line. The mistake that the, the Democrats are making is in believing that they have a mandate. We can explain. I can explain why they are doing it, right? It's because this is the one window where they've got control of everything. So you try to go grab as much as you can, the way Trump did with tax cuts, the way Obama did with health care, and then you lose, and then and then you know you you end up with uh, six years because, and again, this is getting ahead of myself, but losing the House and the Senate is actually good for Biden's reelection prospects for the same reason. It's this negative partisanship. Yeah. Right. And I was, I guess what I was going to say to Some listeners' brains are like short circuiting right now yeah. when you said that. <laughs> I, I actually completely agree with Mike on that point. And I guess what I was, what I was, it was a sort of a leading question, but Mike really broke it down well on these independents and the idea of Biden's speech last night. And when you, when you talked about the numbers where the independents kind of turn is Biden's people and the Democrats keep thinking that they won independence because of their policies. Right. And that they really, they did not because the moment the Democrats had control and started using it, independence started to turn from them. Not because they didn't like them anymore. It's just that they don't have, Donald Trump is no longer the boogeyman for these voters. A hundred, that's exactly what's going on. Exactly. My, yeah. Which I think actually this is a really uh, perfect uh, point to segue over to the unity agenda part of the speech, which is where he highlighted the potential for bipartisan legislature and sort of, look, 
all those other things that where he where he broke where he didn't say build back better but still reiterated his support for all these things that everybody knows aren't going to happen that was him trying to get the progressives to come along with him but where where the the piece of the speech that has been written for a very very long time since before Ukraine that was in the middle of the speech called the unity agenda was composed of four things beating the opioid epidemic, improving mental health, especially among children, supporting veterans, and the cancer moonshot. These are all things that, that, you, can, that you can campaign on, right? Uh, so, it's also so, where they all stood you know, up. Like, what I was going to. <laughs> it's, all, it's also where they all stood up, right? So to, you know, Mike, I, I wonder how you think about that piece of sort of rhetorical jujitsu, given the landscape you just described and not needing, like basically not being able to win on all the other stuff. Look, I think it's really beautiful rhetoric. I think it's the, the, one of the things that we love about politics, but I don't think any of those things are what are, are going to, the cancer moonshot, I don't think there's anybody out there who's going to be like, all, oh yeah, the Biden's for the bipartisan cancer moonshot. I think I'm going to vote for him and the Democrats this year. Like, that's not the way yeah. voter opinion does. But it, is, but, it, but it is an attempt to shift the frame on domestic stuff. Well, one is I think that's a mistake. Again, I'll reiterate that. You can't win. The, the Democrats can't win on domestic issues. It's not going to happen for right. the reasons I just articulated. So, you know, yeah, it's fine. Look, I think a president's job is to talk about unity and to demonstrate these areas where we can work on some of these things to, to be a united people. But that's not the way elections are won. Right, people. Look, everybody, everybody. I've been listening to voters and focus groups and polls for three decades now, and they all say, oh, "God, I just wish they would all get along. I, I wish they could, you know, the center would would rise up and people could just fix things and make things work." What they're really saying is, "I wish other people would agree with me." <laughs> like, I wish people would just change their minds and agree with me. And again, when you start to view politics through the frames of this negative partisanship, that people vote based off of what they're against, not what they're for you start to realize that that is a real problem for unity because th there are very few issues where we can still come together. And even though those issues exist and we can get those done legislatively, that's not why people are showing up to vote. It's not. It hasn't been for a very, very long time. And so it, we'd like to believe it is just the way we'd like to believe in unicorns, but they don't exist, right? We really want them to be there, but they, they, they're, not, they're not real people. And so, and so it's important to understand that in the context of a campaign, contrast is the most important thing. And I don't mean negative, ne you know, negative attack ads, although they're, they're very effective, but also setting the battleground right. You want to fight on your ground. That is 90% of the battle is getting the battlefield right. Yeah. Can I just add that what, there's just one thing that I, I think that's also worth mentioning in Biden hoping that unity mattered and bipartisanship mattered going back to why people may have supported him in the first place was I thought it was very interesting. He said there were 80 pieces of legislation, bipartisan legislation I signed since taking office. He really was trying to push that message. I don't think, I mean, I'm a sucker for it. Okay. I'll admit I, 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 believe in, in, in making government work and making it better and all that stuff. And I'm a sucker. But I do think it was this administration's attempt to try and show, yes, you hired me to get back to some kind of normalcy. And look, here are 80 pieces of legislation passed bipartisan. I just think to Mike's point, it, 
they've tr- they tried to highlight it so much, but it kind of fell flat. It sounded good, lots of claps, but it just goes absolutely nowhere after yesterday. Okay, so let's take a few minutes now just to discuss the Republican response. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who gave the official Republican response to the State of the Union. Um, I'm not going to lead off this time. I want to know what both of you made of her response. Did she lay out enough of an agenda for voters to have a sense of what Republicans actually stand for? Uh, if they, if they, if, you know, if they do take back seats in the midterms and, and, and what did you make of her also concluding that the state of the union is strong? <laughs> Mike? <laughs> well, look, I read her remarks and I got a lot of the feedback. I didn't listen to it, but it sounded to me like it was almost entirely the cultural, you know, warfare stuff that you would see on Fox news. That's why, again, Republicans win this stuff for people who, for people who don't, you know, follow Republicans or watch Fox news. It's kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? You sound like an idiot. This is what is consolidating the base. That this is this is the framework that they win on with their base, which is all that they need to get to the midterms. Okay, and so while the Democrats are, you know, will spend time, and I think they're starting to pivot because they're seeing some of those polling numbers. The DCCC put out some numbers that these cultural issues are really damaging to uh, um, to to, to left leaning independents and Hispanic voters. They're like they're they're go, they're moving towards the Republicans. These issues do work, and that is why they're going to fight on that ground. They're not going to have a domestic policy agenda. They're not going to have any ideas. They're going to fight on, on, the, on the battlefield that benefits them. They're going to take the high ground. And um, I think it's important. I, I don't know what she said about Ukraine other than we stand with you know, the Ukrainians. It's going to be really interesting to watch Republican policy and, and politics start to take shape and form as this rolls out, because they don't know where to be. There's a huge, huge vacuum, which is another argument to start driving the message train down that road, is because there's going to be splintering in the Republican coalition on this. Now, I will say, because wars are messy things, that in in a month, six weeks from now, you know, we're not going to be all, you know, putting the Ukrainian flag on our Facebook pages, you know, anymore. People are going to be tired of seeing some of the ugly stuff that's coming out of it and public opinion will change. We are a long, long, long way from the midterms. And I'm not saying that Ukraine can salvage the the, the, the Democrats prospect. What I'm saying is it can reboot it and reset the frame. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that's that's kind of a, of a good answer there for you, Ron, but that's the kind of way I see it. Yeah, and that splintering that you mentioned, especially vis-a-vis attitudes towards Ukraine, creates an opportunity or multiple opportunities Extraordinary. for for, uh, for Democrats to to wedge their. And that's why in. they should go at it. Um, is go at it and exacerbate that. Let's have a fight between right. Tucker Carlson and anybody you know, and and half of the Republican conference. That's exactly what you want to do right now: is wedge it, make them fight about what they believe in and what they so support, and 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 fracture the base. If you're if you're moving offensively into the midterms, you are in, you are on the high ground, right? If they're explaining, they're losing, and that's where you want them is trying to articulate that position. They've got Donald Trump, who's complicit in a lot of this stuff, right? And they've got other traditional conservatives who are saying these are Russians. They're they're waking up, reminding these are these are not the good guys, 
And, oh, and, oh shit! We fought these guys a long time ago. Yeah. I've been sleeping. But, yeah, and suddenly yeah. half of right. the, half of the party is the biggest cheerleading section for for Vladimir Putin. Like that. That's like you could drive a truck through that through that opening. Right. So take advantage of right. that tactically. Go through that. Drive through that. And what they're going to re, re, what what I guarantee the Republicans will fall back on is uh, transgender sports. Transgender sports. You can't have. You know. That and and that will start to bring back. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I got to remember that you know they're Russians and they're Democrats, but we stand against transgender sports, right? Like, right. Th- that is the, so, that what they are looking for is their high ground, and and culture is yeah. has always played to their advantage because they've been very shameless about what it is that they're, they're willing to articulate, and it speaks to, to some very base level in human beings, especially their base, and that consolidates folks, and that's why. That's why her response was framed that way. And that is 99% of what you're going to hear from the Republicans until the tide potentially turns on the war in Ukraine. If it does not, they're not going to be talking about policy. They're going to be talking about culture issues. Right. So, Susan, taking defunding the police as an example, right, um, Reynolds in her in her response uh, talked about how Democrats, how Democrats want to defund the police <laughs> literally 35 minutes after Biden got a standing ovation for talking about funding the police, which was simulcast on like eight channels on national television. If like how, how so basically how do Democrats then get to those viewers with what the actual position of the party is? Okay. Well, a few things just to Mike's point on Tucker, like He's just to prove that he's right. Tucker Carlson actually stopped talking about defending Putin about four or five yeah, days I ago. Did. That dialogue has yeah, he he pulled that way back. It's not like he's still doing it. He pulled it back because he was he was like, shit, I am just <laughs> Yeah, because remember, and our listeners right. know this by now, Tucker Carlson is not stupid. Right. Like right? he saw he is that craven, he, but he's not dumb. Yeah, and he saw that wasn't working and he he was the last of the Fox commentators. And I think that, you know, there's still a few ultra right wing uh, media outlets there trying to do it, but even Bolton's pushing back on them. So that that conversation is kind of moot at that point from Fox as far as like loving Putin. They, they don't love him anymore. They just are now looking to go after Biden on, on him not doing enough. Ironically, that's where the conversation has changed in conservative media. Um, you know, the the response. The rebuttal, Republicans have tried to use this as a way of kind of stepping up into the national spotlight as a way to raise their profile. It looks like they learned it doesn't work because they put one of the blandest, most like non-eventful rebuttals ever, ever seen. Um, It could have been written six months ago. It could be written six months from now. I I find the whole thing actually, like you said, it it kind of made fun of its it, it kind of discredited itself because the defund the police uh, line in the in the president's speech versus her speech. So I I think it's a wash. I don't think there was anything in there that matters. Um, I I I find that you know she tried to talk as a mother. She did she did the mother, the grandparent, and that you matter kind of going back to. I mean, that was a culture war on, on critical race theory. I think she was trying she talked to talk about use. schools being yeah, open, that, which the president that, also said we should keep them open. Yeah, but it's it, more than than keeping schools open. I think when we talk about you know, being 
more policy related. I think to Mike's point, it's a culture war thing on critical race theory and, and going even further than that, as and we've masks, seen. Masks on kids. Yeah, too. which is masks ironic, just not for nothing. It's pretty ironic considering it's the Republicans that are now basically restricting what books people can read um, oh, yeah. in, in um, their kids' libraries. So I find that kind of interesting. But it, it, this, the rebuttal proved very consistent. It didn't matter. Now that we are up to speed on <laughs> the State of the Union address, <laughs> let's talk about what you are watching under the radar. Susan, what do you got? I am looking at Texas, the Texas primary, and what happened with vote by mail. Uh, we know that there was a lot of votes rejected, but what was also interesting, it looks like it may have been hurting Republicans because older voters were having their, their applications rejected. Uh, there were some areas that we see where Republicans are making inroads uh, in the Latino community and their ballots were also rejected that we, we may be seeing a rethinking of some of these this legislation or at least a change in the education campaign because the numbers are staggering. It also, the Texas primary showed us one thing is about voter enthusiasm. Um, there were 1.9 million Republicans who came out to vote in this primary versus 1 million Democrats. In 2018, the number was 1.5 Republicans, 1.5 million Republicans versus 1 million Democrats. So that's also reflective. So I'm, I'm, but I'm more, more concerned about and looking at the breakdown of the mail by uh, the ballots, the mail ballots in Texas. Good one. Mike, what do you got? I'm watching actually Ron Johnson's race and his numbers in Wisconsin, where you have a Republican who I think will be particularly vulnerable on some of these attacks, deeply underwater, long-term, you know, um, Senator from Wisconsin, who's sitting in a negative 12 position right now, if the Democrats can put up a marginal candidate, um, you know, at worst, a good candidate at best, um, Johnson's in, in a lot of trouble. And I think it's going to be a real, real strong test case of how the messaging will work and not work because Johnson is so exposed. He has been, he, he was in Russia on the 4th of July, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he, Ooh! Oh boy. Yeah, he has been love to make that ad. Yeah, he's really been kowtowing to to kind of the Russia Today talking points, defending uh Vladimir Putin and Orban. And uh he he's really got, I think, a, a very difficult fight and and the fluidity of those numbers with even base Republican voters. Remember, Wisconsin up in the kind of Great Lakes area um has a higher than than normal or higher than average, I should not say normal, higher than average number of college educated white voters for a state in that region. And that's what really keeps the state as competitive as it is. It has shifted to the right over recent years, but not as, as much as the, the Iowa's, for example, of the world. And so that competitiveness is really going to be determinative on whether or not, um, it's going to be a good, 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 um, What's the word? A weather vane? It's going to be a canary in the coal mine. It's going to tell us um, if if those Republicans are soft, it will largely be because of those issues. And um, we'll see what happens. But mm -hmm. I think that it's it's that race is, is starting to really look kind of interesting to me. When we know more about that race, we should come back and reprise that. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Susan, Mike, my dear friends, <laughs> before we head over to <laughs> the after party, aka Politicology Plus, where we are going to talk about this fascinating phenomenon of how corporations have both acted in Russia's interest and both and in the U.S. interests um, on two different sides uh, of of this fight uh, and what that means. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, Mike? Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Susan? On Twitter at Del Percio S. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslo. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.